Hi, my name's Madalena Kay, and I'm the host of the podcast AI and You, produced by Europod in partnership with Podium Podcast, Agence France Press, and Cora Media. In AI and You, we deal with the history of AI and how it is having an impact on our lives. From social relationships to employment, from climate change to wars and security. Is AI changing our world for the better or the worse? Come and check it out for yourself. Subscribe to AI and You wherever you listen to podcasts. Europod. Welcome to Europe Talks Back, a podcast that uncovers impactful stories from across the continent, brought to you by independent journalists on the ground. In today's episode, we'll take you behind the scenes of episode 17 of Europe Talks Back, Being Trans in the Catholic Church. Also in this podcast, a focus on the state of rights of transgender people in Europe and an interview with Maria Dios, producer of Europe Talks Back. My name is Alexander Damiano Ricci, and I'm the executive producer of Europe Talks Back. Let's get to it. So today, as part of our traditional behind-the-scenes content, we have invited Katie Jickling. In last week's episode, Katie covered the story of Phyla, a young trans woman who fights for the rights of transgender people within the Catholic Church. Katie is based in Belgium, but comes originally from the US. So this is me speaking to Katie Jickling. Hi, Katie. It's great to have you with us today. Good to be with you. Katie, in the previous episode, you covered this fantastic story about Phyla, who is a transgender woman in the Catholic Church. Before we dig into that, and I'd ask you to give us a bit of behind the scenes, I'd really like to give the chance to introduce yourself. So who's Katie Jickling? I am from the U.S. I spent the last five years working full-time as a politics and healthcare reporter in my home state of Vermont. And a couple of years ago, I came to Belgium to study a master's degree. And actually, last year, I spent a year as part of a Fulbright research grant in India studying activists in the church both Protestant and Catholic. And so Phyla's story is quite relevant to my own personal research interests as well. Fantastic. Thank you for that. So let's talk about the story of Phyla. When was the first time you met her or you encountered her story, actually? I actually know Phyla on a personal level through friends. So I have watched her over the last months or, or years navigate the challenges she describes within the church. And I've had the privilege of seeing how she both maybe attends protests, but also is hesitant about being too public in certain other areas, for instance, in Bible readings up at the front of the church on Sundays. And I have heard firsthand how she is navigating and going back and forth on how public and how activist-y, for lack of a better word, she wants to be about trans and LGBTQ issues. And you hear that tension in her interview. And so watching that unfold through my own relationship with her and relationship with friends who also know her is what made me think this is a really interesting story. Was there one moment you thought, okay, this story needs to be told? 
And when was that? I saw Phyla come back. Phyla and her wife, Laura, came back from a pride march in Brussels. And Phyla had been quite hesitant, actually, about going. And she said, I don't know if I want to be a loud trans activist. Sometimes I just want to be a good Catholic girl. And to me, that's a beautiful tension. I think in the media so often we hear these stories of people who fit into one box, either as someone really pushing an LGBTQ agenda and out there on the streets or advocating for certain policies, or people who often who are against that stance as well. But we rarely get a glimpse into the tension of people experiencing that. What are the costs of activism? What are the challenges? For instance, Phyla's personal relationships affected by her activism. Sometimes she's trying to fit in. Sometimes she's trying to make significant changes. And she wants both. And I think that quote really beautifully captured that. Amazing. I don't know if you're kind of if you already spoiled the answer to my next question here, but indeed I wanted to ask you if there's one detail of that story, because so you tell the whole arc of her trajectory inside the Catholic Church, right? Since when she was a child in Canada, the high school phase, then the seminary phase, and then the transition, you know, the focus on activism, which you kind of mentioned right now. But is there one detail of that story which you think is really worth focusing on and highlighting? The question of the place of LGBTQ people in the church, and especially trans people, is very much in, in flux in this moment. It's not settled either in society at large, but especially in the Catholic Church. And that's partly true because there are simply so few out trans people within the church. I think Phyla's very existence within the church is sort of the moment in the story that I point to, the moments where Phyla is playing the drums alongside the pianist or other musicians on Sunday, the moments where she's serving or challenging the priest on certain parts of his homily, perhaps. Those are the moments that point to these larger tensions and uncertainties within the Catholic Church. And I also think it's important to see polarized issues such as LGBTQ issues that often fall square or the church that often fall squarely into the political right and the political left. And Phyla's story complicates those narratives. And I think those are really important in a very polarized political discourse that you particularly see in the US right now, but also certainly in Europe as well. I agree that oftentimes, if not always, the beauty of these stories lies in the details and also the ordinary details. And I think this is really an excellent example for that. So let's, you know, enlarge a bit the picture here. I'd like to ask you a question, which is a bit broader and more specifically, I guess you might have some thoughts about what is the situation of transgender persons in Europe and more specifically from a perspective of rights. Policies around transgender healthcare, for instance, and laws and rights have been changing across Europe. 
in Spain this year, there was a new national law um, pushing for gender equality for trans people that allowed people to change their gender identity without medical diagnosis or without hormonal treatment, which is what was required in the previous law. Similar changes have happened, for instance, in Finland and in other places as well. There are still several countries that do not recognize or accept trans asylum seekers, specifically taking into account their LGBTQ status, according to some advocacy organizations, at least like required by law. There are also, it's made news recently that there are some countries that are restricting youth transgender medical care, such as puberty blockers, that kind of thing, with the argument that we just don't know enough about how it'll affect these young people long term. And so, as you can see, like in the church, like in Phyla's story, all of this is changing quite fast. And we're seeing that unfold. We're seeing different countries navigating this in different ways. Thanks for this overview. Yeah, I think there's still a, a long way to go to have, you know, full integration of transgender people into our societies. But I think that telling the story of Phyla is one important step in that direction. The one thing I was going to add is I think it's important to note that as some countries add or address some of the rights or discrimination, there's also been a backlash in many countries. And we've seen that in Poland or in Bulgaria, certain other countries that have created more restrictive legislation in response to some of the changes in Western Europe. And that, of course, has been a subject around for, for activism and pushback politically in, in various ways. Absolutely. And I think that this might be part of a broader backlash, culturally speaking, when it comes to evaluate the advancement of progressive rights and policies across Europe. And we have experiences actually both in Europe and in the US, I believe, over the past decade or so. Katie, what are you up to next in terms of reporting or research? What are your next activities going to be? I'm going to continue doing freelance stories from Belgium and I'm continuing working on my master's degree. My master's research also focuses on my work in India and a group of women religious activists. So I'm continuing in this same area of work and interest. Fantastic. Last but not least, where can people follow you or get in touch with you? I'm old school. Email's the best way to go. So... Katiejickling at gmail.com is the way to do it. Fantastic. Katie, thanks so much for being with us today and most of all for bringing us the beautiful story of Phyla. We are really honored and proud to have that story part of your talks back. Thank you very much. After having heard from Katie, let's move on with an overview of the most significant news and resources when it comes to understanding the state of transgender rights in Europe. Earlier this year, in May, TGEU, which stands for Transgender Europe, a member-based organization created in 2005, released the Trans Right Index and Map 2023. So the Trans Right Index and Map is a mapping research project on trans rights in Europe and Central Asia to empower trans communities to advocate for policy changes. The Trans Right Index and Map assesses which countries did in fact improve in trans rights and which one did not. So, good news came from Spain, Finland, Greece, Moldova, Albania and Kazakhstan. 
each of them for different reasons, of course. For instance, Spain and Finland adopted legal gender recognition based on self-determination. As a result, today, 11 countries follow a self-determination-based legal gender recognition model. Greece and Spain introduced new conversion therapy bans on grounds of gender identity. Moldova made a number of changes to explicitly protect trans people from discrimination, hate crime and hate speech. But let's take a look at the less positive developments the Trans Right Index and MAP 2023 points at. Regression of trans rights has been observed in Slovakia. This is due to inconsistent requirements for legal gender recognition, TGU says, and a new bill which threatens to outlaw it entirely. Although we mentioned Spain as a country featuring positive developments, the country has also been introducing restrictive age limits on legal gender recognition. Moreover, many EU member states are failing to meet their obligations to trans people in the context of asylum policies. More specifically, eight EU member states, namely Bulgaria, Czechia, Denmark, Estonia, Hungary, Lithuania, Poland and Romania, still do not provide explicit asylum protection in the law. This happens in violation of EU law. In the context of this podcast, it's impossible to provide a full account of the content of the Trans Right Index and MAP 2023 by TGEU. But we warmly invite you to go and check it out online yourself at www.tgeu.org slash trans hyphen rights hyphen map hyphen 2023. So a bit differently than in the previous behind the scenes episodes of Europe Talks Back, today we have a second interview taking place. We invited Maria Dios, who has been working as a producer of Europe Talks Back until the end of August 2023. Maria, in fact, just left the Europe Talks Back team for career change. And so we thought it would have been cool to let her share with you a bit of her take on Europe Talks Back and podcasting more generally in the field of journalism. Maria has been working on the first season of Europe Talks Back as an assistant producer and on the second ongoing series as the lead producer. So this is me speaking to Maria Dios. Hi, Maria. It's great to have you with us. Hi, it's great being here. So, Maria, I already talked about you in the introduction. So I wanted just to give you a bit of space to talk about Europe Talks Back, which is a project you very much conceived from the beginning, led over the past few months. Tell me a bit your feelings looking back at these past few months as a producer of Europe Talks Back, maybe starting off from what your tasks were. Sure. I have been producing the second season of Back since May until beginning of September. And my feeling is like this looks much more time than it was because we were able to produce episodes on many different topics from climate action to youth homelessness, depopulation, racism, gender-based violence. So it feels like a lot. So that's the first Thing I wanted to say. I think I grow a lot professionally on the personal side. And talking in a little bit about the tasks, basically it was to give a space to other freelancers to tell the story they wanted to tell. And this meant launching call for pitches, talking to a lot of journalists to understand what they were proposing to me, selecting the topics 
participating also in the editorial meetings of this FERA network to decide the priorities for all the media outlets that are involved in the project. And then after the selection was done, I was in contact with the freelancer and reviewing their script, giving guidelines, and then putting it together with Jeremy, who is the sound engineer, to see that the post-production fit the feeling of the episode. So that was how my day-to-day work looked like. It's amazing how much work goes behind a product which is only 20 minutes long every week, right? I mean, I feel it's kind of when someone listens to a podcast, I mean, we are from the industry, so we know that, but I think it's also cool to mention that it's an astonishing amount of work actually, isn't it? Yeah, indeed. We were releasing episodes every week and one episode to produce it, I think it took us two weeks of work. So it's a lot. And then to that time, you have to add the time the journalists spent writing the pitch and conducting the interviewee, doing the actual interview, recording on the ground. So you're right, it's like 20 minutes, but in fact, it's a lot of hours of work behind. So what were you aiming at with your job as an editor, producer specifically of your talks back season? So this product, what I think it gives is a space for podcasters across the continent to tell a story. So what I wanted to do is to build a network of young journalists to find a space to share some interviews, some topics that they believe are important to tell. My aim was to build this kind of network, this kind of space, and then to give room for topics that perhaps it's not so easy to find on the mainstream media. We are following a narrative style. So I believe the format is more light to consume, and this allows us to cover complex topics. So I wanted to go to the personal stories to build up a more complex episode, a more complex topic. That was a little bit the idea behind it. Yeah, I agree that building up this network of reporters on the ground is really a mission, but at the same time, a tool also to create a product which really feels like truly European. It's something that everyone can say probably, but it's different when you work with people from different countries on the ground. I think that you can feel that. Obviously, the sound quality of the interviews in the first place, but there is something more to it. And I truly agree that it's a great goal to have in mind, but also to create a really powerful product. Speaking of which, I wanted to ask you if there is one episode of those you have produced, which you look back at with particular pride. So for me, it could be episode nine, I believe, the one where we traveled to Greece. It's called From Ghost Towns to Vibrant Communities, the Musician Sex Machine Experience. And I could choose this episode for one main reason, that The other episodes explore really intense, probably negative stories. And this one is more cheerful. So we go to a music festival and in this cool atmosphere, more chill, we get to know this other reality in Greece, uh, which is the population. And I think nowadays it's really difficult to find positive stories on the media because our society is facing a lot of challenges. And 
when I was selecting the topics, it was really difficult for me to have a balance between the positive and the negative. Still, this episode is important because it covers a complex and difficult challenge such as the population, but still I think we did something different together with Jenny, the scriptwriter. So I'm particularly proud of this topic and this episode. Thanks for that. Indeed, an amazing episode. We had worked with Jenny already in the past, right, on, a, on another project you worked on as an editor. Yes, the free fall of press freedom in Greece. Also a really cool one, a good recommendation to listen to. <laughs> so a bit of more of a promotional question now. I mean, if it hasn't been already promotional enough, but what do you believe is the added value of your talks back in the context of podcasts about Europe? So I come from local journalism and I think that the added value of your talks back is that although we are looking at the general context in our continent, we get to know really local stories. So I would say that the fact that we can travel across Europe and get to know interviewees that otherwise could be really difficult to meet is the added value. So I could go for the freelancers that we work with. I think that's the main added value of this podcast series. So more generally, your job at Europe Talks Back ending coincides with you leaving also the Brussels-based podcast agency, Bull Media. So it has been one year, you know, heads on podcasting. You didn't come from podcasting before necessarily. How do you see podcasting in Europe and maybe more precisely in the sector of journalism? So this is a fact that podcasting is on the rise. I mean, it's the main takeaway from the Reuters report of 2023. And this is something that I experienced at my work at Bull Media. It seems like everyone has a podcast now or a lot of companies are going to the podcast industry as an added value or product to their communications strategy. And I think it's a smart move. And I really believe in the power of podcasts because it creates an intimate relation with the listener and the narrator or the host. And it also allows you to do other things while you are listening and learning. And this is actually great for memory. So I think it's a incredible, useful tool to reach other people and to generate deep conversations and explore complex topics in a more easy to consume way, either in journalism or in communications. I think it works just well. Right. And let me ask you, also, you have spoken a lot about the pros and the cool side of podcasting. I was wondering, you know, after one year, if you also have some more, not necessarily negative feelings, but also maybe more critical analysis of the podcasting tool to share or not? I don't know if it's negative, but of course, I think it's a piece of advice that, and this is something that you know well, Alex, that it's really difficult to grow an audience. So I think it's important before going into podcasts to think if we have something to tell and if there is an audience there for us, because it's really difficult to get your downloads or your place grow, especially if it's a niche area or a really specific topic. So I feel like there are a lot of options for users to choose and the market is growing, but at the same time, there is a lot of people competing to get your attention. So yeah, that could be like the negative side that is difficult to see the results if we are talking about listeners. 
Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, audience development and discoverability of podcasts are two of the main themes and challenges which have been out there in the discussions about the podcast industry since the beginning. And obviously this has also an impact then on how the industry can grow in the long term or let's say how a diverse industry can grow in the long term, obviously also attracting advertisers and all that comes with that. Thank you until now for these insights. I have a last question, which is tell us more about your new job if you want to. <laughs> yeah, I will happy to do that. So I joined the Green European Journal, which is a magazine specialized in political ecology as a communications and outreach manager. I love working on climate related topics. So that's why I decided to change jobs. Of course, climate has been really present along the second season of Eurotox back. But uh, nowadays I'm focusing completely in this kind of topics. So that's what I'm doing now. And that's what I'm going to do, hopefully, in the long shot as well. Thank you, Maria. Thanks a lot for these insights and all the work you put into Europe Talks Back, into Bull Media. And we wish you all the best in your future career. And with our chat with Maria, we have reached the end of this week's episode of Europe Talks Back. This show is part of the Sphera Network project and is available on Europod. Our sound design and mixing are by Jeremy Bucke. My name is Alexander Damiano Ricci and I'm the executive producer of Europe Talks Back. Stay tuned for next week's episode, where we'll travel to Portugal to talk about the fight of artists in Porto against evictions. Bye.